With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim. How are you today? I'm doing great because we got to catch up with an old friend, old true crime guy, Mike Morford. You might know him as Morph. He literally does every podcast that's not Crawl Space and Missing More Murray or Empty Frames. And he's got a new season of his podcast called scene of the crime and this is one where he acts as more of a producer engineer and researcher and puts together the shows from that point of view and scene of the crime season one was on the delphi murders make sure to check that out if you haven't but season two he just started releasing and it's about the murders of rose burkert and roger atkinson it's an iowa unsolved double murder from 40 years ago it is a crazy story once he starts uh, talking about the details and how certain things don't line up. Rose was 22. Roger was 32. It was seemingly like they were having an affair. They were murdered at the Amana Holiday Inn, and this was in Williamsburg, Iowa. The hotel room, the scene of the crime was uh, perplexing. There's a number of suspects, and when you think that you've figured out, like, that's the guy, turns out he's got a rock-solid alibi, so this is a incredibly interesting case and and morph's doing a great job covering it he really is lance it's a great show make sure to check it out and lance before we throw it to the interview i want to mention something that we're doing called the true crime podcasters survival guide it is a course it's it's actually like an almost like a, like an education course lance and uh, you can check it out at avid.com slash true crime that's right, Tim. And the first 50 students will get 50% off using the coupon code CRAWLSPACE. And again, that's avid.fm slash truecrime. And Tim, it comes with this uh, cool game that they put together, which you can play at crimeriddle.com. That's right. You can test your detective skills and try to solve four riddles on famous murder cases in history, and you can win free access to the course that we just mentioned, as well as a special mystery gift box set. So mysterious. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CrawlSpacePod. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, Mike Morford, the true crime guy. What's up? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's about time. I mean, it's been how long since you've joined us on, on the show? I mean, you used to be like a regular guest. You used to be the, you know, the Dr. Phil to our Oprah at, at one time, uh, you know, just kind of always there, always giving the, uh, giving the input. And then you just dropped off. We thought you were abducted or, or uh, you joined a, a Bigfoot uh, secret society or something. Because you guys have like all the shiny new toys that you play with, and you just kick the old, the old has-been toys here to the curb, <laughs> <laughs> the, to the island of the misfit toys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll never kick you to the curb, Morph. And uh, I think what is this? Your seventh appearance? Is this your sixth or your seventh now on these crawl space airwaves? If I if I kept counting, that would just be showing off. So, <laughs> Very true. all right. <laughs> and uh, and you're here specifically this time to talk about some new seasons, new cases that you're doing on on two of your many many podcasts. Yeah, uh, it just so happens that two uh, shows that I work on uh, have new seasons that launch this week. Uh, the first of which is Scene of the Crime season two uh, launches tomorrow. 
we're recording this on the uh, 13th. It launches on October 14th. And um, season three of Three Men and a Mystery, uh, that launched last week, actually. So two new seasons roll. And John Lorden's, uh, the, that scoundrel John Lorden, he's still on Three Men and a Mystery with you, with Gray Hughes? Yeah, he's the glue that sort of keeps it all together. Uh, he keeps Gray and I in check and does all the uh, technical wizardry that, that we do on the show. Now, is is John Lorden, uh, did he enter into a contract with the two of you for Three Men and, and, a, and a Crime? Uh, after, like, season three, is it are you required to change the name to John Lorden and two other guys talk about crime? Or I mean, is his name going to be associated with it on a higher level in upcoming seasons? No, he didn't let me read the contract. He just said, you're going to do this, and you'll be here on this date, and then after that, I don't know. Now, he's he's been... Uh, He's been uh, uh, he's a very organized person that, that really keeps us focused and uh, keeps us uh, on track. See, that's that's the thing. You trust him, and you'll just sign whatever he puts in front of you. Yeah, that's his when, ploy. Because I'm I'm a little bit of a slacker when it comes to organization. You know, I'm sort of haphazard, and I'm I have a lot of stuff going on. It's hard to keep control of it. He's got this like uh, software that has everything organized and has everything right down to the minute and. Uh, I need a little bit of that uh, focus in my life. Well, I he, I am about to be struck dead by John Lorden because I believe I just misspoke and called it Three Men in a Crime. It's Three Men in a Mystery. So uh, I've already angered the gods. Exactly. Now you're going to get a, a letter from, from John. Shit. I'll be looking forward to that letter, and I do apologize. Three Men in a Mystery, which will later be called John Lorden Presents Two Guys Talking About a Mystery. Yes. But just imagine how well written that letter would be from John Lorden. We could and, go uh, on. <laughs> what uh, what case are you covering uh, on on that show? We're covering a case of a girl named Allison Watterson who disappeared in December uh, of last year, and we were working with her mom to get it focused for the case and get attention on it, and hopefully um, spread the word that the case uh, is unsolved. She's still missing. Uh, and then, unfortunately, she's since turned up deceased. Um, not that it's a big spoiler, um, but she turned up deceased, and there's a lot of questions surrounding what happened to her. And this was uh, in the Pacific Northwest? Was this in Oregon? Yeah, Oregon. And how much communication had you done with the family before her body turned up? We had... Talked and uh, a few. Well, Gray, I think, was talking to her a little bit, and then uh, John and Gray and I had a conference with her, and um, she was very, very positive and hopeful that Allison was out there someplace, and and we sort of were feeding off that, hoping the same thing, and then tragically, uh, we got the alert that she had been found and she was dead. So that sort of threw us a curveball, which we're used to on that show, because that happens like every season of that. Um, and now it's just a question of what happened and is there somebody that's responsible? So we're going down those rabbit holes with this season. Well, that's interesting and exciting. I think you've uh, you've got a great team assembled for that uh, for that show. You and, and John Lorden and Gray Hughes, I think you guys are up to the task. You solved the last case you covered. I mean, just you guys alone solved it. Well, anytime we uh, can cover something, get some attention on it, if it gets solved, we'll take credit for it. <laughs> as long as the case gets solved, we don't care. Yeah. So uh, are you planning on moving forward with recording more episodes uh, in connection with the case? Are you going to do some investigation on your own or talk to law enforcement? We've had experts on the show. Um, we've had a couple of people that we talked to, uh, private investigators, that kind of stuff. Uh, we are actually uh, recording this week the final episode, so I think it's if memory serves, my memory shot right now. So, but I think it's going to be ten episodes. Um, so there's there's two out as we speak, and I think there'll be uh, eight to ten, something like that in in total. And you have more of a hands on approach to scene of the crime, one of your other many many podcasts. Yeah, scene of the crime. I co produce. You won't hear my voice in it. Uh, anywhere, which is good well, for some tragedy. people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, we what we wanted to do with scene of the crime is is have a 
a storytelling podcast um, where you're going to sit back and you're going to hear a story. And there were a lot of people with better voices than me. So um, in season two, we're, we're actually uh, excited that we have Jamie Rice from Murderish. Um, she's our uh, narrator and she does a great job and she's got one of the best voices. So we're really excited about that. Um, and we, we talk to a lot of people and in the case that we'll talk about is really bonkers. And uh, you talk about rabbit holes. This, this is case that's filled with them. Well, I uh, beg to differ on one of your points there. You said that uh, people wouldn't want to be, there are other voices that people would rather hear. I, I beg to differ. That's uh, completely inaccurate. Um, uh, what's it like, though, taking that step uh, away from the microphone and more on a producer level and putting it in the hands of other people? Did you feel at first that you needed to be more in control or were you okay with uh, releasing some of that control? I like the the idea of, being part of a team that puts stuff together and assembles it and not necessarily has my, my voice out there. And I, I think, I think for the cases we cover, it helps to have, uh, you know, a female's voice, um, a softer voice, something that um, puts people at ease while they're going down some, some really terrible details um, so for us, I think that was important was to have a female voice that was one that would put people at ease. And I think Jamie really brings that to the table. But as, as far as the assembling of the show, the production of it, it's really cool to to just sit back in the background and, and work with my co-producers. One of them is Gray Hughes, which um, obviously he's from Three Men in a Mystery 2. Um, and then the other one is Jess Bentoncourt, who's who's phenomenal what she does. Right. Okay. Cool. And uh, and so, but you you guys get interviews with law enforcement, with the family members, and private investigators in in this podcast. So who talks to them? So usually uh, it, it can be uh, any one of us. Tr- traditionally, it's me, but sometimes Gray, if, if need be, will do that. But um, a lot of that I do, and um, I'll do that over two months probably in advance of the show we'll, we'll do the interviews first and, and have them on standby early uh early on and we'll edit them uh but yeah we talked to ex uh police uh that are involved in this case uh current investigators we talked to paul holes who's like mr popular true crime uh everybody loves hearing from him but then we really talked to um family friends and even the we get down into the weeds and we talk to the hotel manager where this crime happened, the maid who found the bodies. Um, so you, we're hearing rather than somebody um, just telling you what happened, you hear from the people themselves that are involved in it, which, which is uh, one of the cool things that I like about it. Well, you're always breaking the mold when it comes to true crime podcasting and just, you know, your particular style and and the way you approach um, the cases and the family members. Is there anything that's coming up that we can look forward to? Or is there anything that's happened recently that you've kind of maybe looked at and said that stands out as like a career highlight for you? Something that is, uh, you know, bigger than bigger than the show that you're involved in, if that makes sense. Um. I'm always looking for something different, something that really catches my attention and maybe collaborations uh, with people. So, you know, I guess to your point, if if there's something that comes along, I'm willing to, to look at it and, and see if it's something that would interest me in, in working on. Well, tell us a little bit about this case. Let's, let's get some of these details because uh, this is a really compelling case. Yeah, so this this case happens in September of 1980 uh, in Iowa. And in season, let me just start over by saying in season one of Scene of the Crime, we covered the Delphi murders of Libby German and Abigail Williams, two sweet, innocent young girls um, that were out and about minding their own business, and they ran across somebody that was really horrible and did, did what they did to them. Um, in season two, we, we couldn't have any more of a different scenario. Um, we're dealing with a man and a woman, uh, Roger Atkinson and Rose Burkert, who were hacked to death in a hotel room in Iowa. And when the police 
go there, they find them. It doesn't take them long to identify them and come to find out that Roger and Rose uh, are not married. Roger's married, but Rose isn't. So there's, you start off right out of the gate with, okay, there's an affair going on here. So right away they start going down the, okay, this sounds like a jealous lover, a jealous spouse. They go down that avenue. And this, keep in mind, this happens hours from their actual home. They drove a great distance to put uh, distance between themselves, between uh, them and people they knew, people that they might encounter. This was their own private getaway. Yet somehow uh, they wound up getting murdered out here. And the crime is, is really grisly. It seems like there's some passion involved. There's clues we talk about that makes it seem like it could be um, someone close to them that's jealous. It's a crime of passion. But there's a lot of stuff pointing that it could be a serial killer. There's multiple serial killers that actually come to the come to the, the forefront. Um, and at the end of the day, it's just a, it's a, it's a bonkers mystery. This is something straight out of a, a crime novel. How did you first hear about this? Because it is a bit obscure, right? It is a rather obscure uh, case. We covered it on criminology. Um, and I, after doing an hour episode on criminology, I I said, there's a lot to this case. And I, I want to revisit that at some point in an expanded version. And I stayed in touch with the sheriff, um, Sheriff Rob Rotter, out of Iowa that's handling the case. And, and he and I talked and sort of stayed close. Um, and then, uh, I, I said it down the road, I'd like to do something more in depth on this. Would you be open to sharing your files and sharing what you have? And, and he says, yeah, he says, we want to solve this case. So we're going to, we're going to take an approach where we lay out our stuff, what we have. Um, and then it just so happened too, that Paul Holes launched his, uh, TV show, the DNA of murder. Um, and this was a case that I had suggested uh, for Oxygen to, to do, uh, for Paul to take on, because I really thought he could help this case, and he did uh, tackle this case in his first episode. Um, it was like a 90-minute episode for, for the show, and Paul said he could have done a six-hour episode out of it. There's so much so much to it, um, which is what we found, and it's going to be it's gonna be 11 or 12 episodes in total. Wow, good for you. So you not only brought the attention... Uh to law enforcement, you've actually communicated with them in Iowa and they're open to sharing their case file with you, but you also brought it to the public attention by uh, facilitating the arrangement with uh, Paul Holes and, and Oxygen. Yeah, they, they were looking for cases that, that Paul could help with if there's DNA involved. Um, and that was a case that I felt he could definitely help with. And when he jumped into it and decided to do it on his show, I felt that was going to help get it some some attention that it needed and it sort of blew up a little bit uh in uh interest wise after that but again paul said we could have done a six hour show out of it we just barely scratched the surface and i said well let's do that six hour one that paul wanted to do we're going to do that on a podcast and that's what we did and again thanks to sheriff rotter he opened up his uh shelves to us there's what we've got you know it's sort of a uh, look through our stuff and, and tell the story and and that's what we've we've done and it's really really detailed in depth there's a lot of twists and turns countless suspects and people of interest did anything come from the dna yes yeah, so there is uh dna work um paul uh had on his show if anyone watched that episode he had concluded that he felt that there's a serial killer um, that was responsible for the, the murders. Um, there is a, a piece of DNA evidence that's from a towel in the bathroom that somebody wiped off. Um, that DNA, it's not enough to do um, full genealogy on, but it's enough to rule out suspects. And it was compared to the serial killer, Sparza was his name, it's compared to his, and it didn't match. Um so that means that he either wasn't the killer or that the DNA found on the towel didn't belong to the killer. He could have been a maid or something like that. So we have that going where there's DNA evidence, but it's not enough to just throw in a, in a database someplace and, and do family tree uh, work on it. It's actually got to be compared one-to-one -one, um, to, to suspects. 
so I, I know this case is kind of weird with because the both victims ended up driving, right? So you said it was about three hour drive dis, distance. Yeah, without giving a lot away and getting sidetracked, essentially, Roger, who had a very public persona with his wife, they were rather religious and and members of the non-smoking club, um, things like that on the surface. That's what they look like to to most people. But he was a phone installer, and he was one-on-one in women's homes frequently by himself. And he would flirt with some of these women and he'd have affairs um, with some of these women. And um, he wound up with Rose. He was sent to a job in um, Cahoka, Missouri. They lived in Missouri. And from Cahoka, they drove the couple hours to Iowa where the crime ultimately happens. So not only, it's not a case of somebody drives by the, the their local in their local town and says, oh, I see Rose's car and Roger's car there. Let me go uh, see why they're together. This is hours away, hundreds of miles away from their home. So the chances of them running into somebody that they knew there are remote. So you've got this whole thing of, is, it, is this a case of uh, somebody that's jealous or did they run into a stranger that, that was just the wrong person? Um, and, and it goes from there, and then they've got to go down these different rabbit holes, the investigators do, of, of all these different scenarios. But you, you mentioned, too, the, the car, um, they drove in, in one car, um, not two cars. Right, okay. And, but I would still imagine that there's a better chance that they ran into someone they knew uh, who might have done that than just a serial killer, even though it was still a few hours away. Well, I mean, the odds are that you're not going to run into a serial killer and get murdered by them. I mean, it's, yeah. the odds of that happening are, are, are slim. Um, but, again, the the path that they took, the distance that they put between themselves uh, and their town and the people that knew them, there's a li- very limited amount of people that knew where they ultimately wound up. In fact, when they arrived at this hotel, they walked in and asked for a room, and they were told, Sorry, we're all booked up because there was a morticians convention going on of all, all things. Right. And then as they were leaving, somebody said, oh, wait, we've got one. We've got a cancellation. Um, and they got room 260 after this last second cancellation. And the rest is, is history. But you said that people knew where they were going. There's a, there a limited people who actually knew where they were going. Who knew? They, they knew they were going to um, this town. And there's a limited amount of hotels in this town. Um, so somebody could have technically said, all right, I know they're in this town and I'm going to see if I can find them at one of these hotels there uh, because there, I think there were only three or so. Uh, but they almost it's not like they had it booked in advance that they had a room reserved at this hotel. They almost didn't get a room there at all. So they drove from this other place in Missouri to there and and somehow barely got a room there. Um, so any kind of advanced knowledge that they're going to be in this room at that hotel sort of goes out the window. But there were people that knew they were in this area at one of the hotels. She did call home uh, to someone that was babysitting her daughter to say, I'm at this hotel if you need to reach me. Um, so it opens up the possibility that someone got the knowledge of which specific hotel room they were in. And again, without giving too much away, um, there, there's evidence that someone called there looking for them at the hotel and said, do you have a couple by this name staying there? Um, and they may have found them that way. If, if you're the police and you're investigating this case, yeah, it's, there's just so many avenues to go down with and so many different people that had motives. That's the crazy thing. That's what makes me think that it's probably not a serial killer. I'm surprised that that Paul Holes concluded that. I'd like to ask uh, why. Well, I guess it could be a question that 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 sort of links in with that. Um, how intense was that initial investigation back in 1980? I know they received a lot of uh, phone calls, a lot of tips uh, in the in the subsequent days. Um, and how much of that kind of carries over to today? Was there anything that's that stuck? Is there anybody that they never really ruled out? They did a good job. Obviously, we always talk about. 1980 crime techniques versus now the labs work in different ways. They use digital 
photography now. Um, back then, they things were a little bit half-assed <laughs> compared to what they are now, but um, they did a good job uh, in certain aspects. They they rounded up every employee and person that was staying at the hotel that weekend. Somehow, they, they got all of them together, and they sort of weeded through every single one of them, trying to see if anyone had a motive, anyone had uh, an opportunity, uh, had a criminal background, uh, and they ruled just about everyone in the hotel out as being um, being a possible suspect. Talk a little bit about the ex-boyfriend of Rose. There were some pretty disturbing details that uh, involves him, and was he ever ruled out? Yeah, so Rose had uh, an ex-boyfriend um, named Dan, and he was one of those hands-on, clingy um, people that a lot of people witnessed him being... Uh, very possessive and maybe a little bit dangerous and making threats. And, and there were some, some issues with um, a little bit of handsiness, possible uh, domestic abuse. Um, but when Rose broke up with this guy, she started getting notes on her car. Um, she started feeling someone was watching her. Her dog turned up dead um, in, in her yard. Um, there's some, there's some mixed uh, back and forth between whether the dog was, was, uh, how the dog was killed. Um, but, but there's a lot of just weird stuff surrounding that seemed to point like this guy could be involved and she, and to make it worse, she told everyone that she knew if something happens to me, it's this guy. So right away, police are zoned in on him. Um, but the only thing was he had an airtight alibi. He was in Missouri working um, and verified to be there during the time of the murders. I mean, there's people that were working on a um, some kind of assembly line right next to him um, during the time in question. Um, so, but he... Well, that would be the first time someone covered for someone if it was him, so... Uh, well, they and they did... They didn't just take that for, for an answer. They did... Uh, I think they uh, polygraphed him and uh, DNA tested him. Um, and as far as they can tell, he has no involvement in the in the uh, crime. But again, when, when you tell someone, if anything happens to me, it's this guy, and then all of a sudden you turn up dead, the police are going to be um, going down that avenue, and that's what they did. Yeah, yeah. and was he working like the overnight shift? Because the only time that this would have happened would have been after they checked in at night and before their bodies were found at like noon the next day, right? Yeah, there's a, a little bit of a discrepancy um, for the time of death. They can't really nail that down. All they know is that it did happen overnight. But when they checked in, they went to their hotel room. Nobody heard anything. They didn't hear any commotions. They didn't see any weird people coming or going. There were no screams, nothing out of the ordinary like that. And then the next day... Um, the maids went in to clean up the room and found their bodies. So um, it's really hard to pinpoint an exact time and, and sort of what they did when they got there, um, how someone got into their room. Um, we talk about a couple different possibilities of why and how someone got in their room in the podcast. I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but um, there's there's definitely some possibilities of, of how someone would come into the room and get in there. But as far as we can tell... It, it it's there was no forced entry, so it seems like the person got in there without forcing their way in. Yeah, and something that jumped out to me in listening to your trailer is that uh, her, her body, Rose's body, was covered um, where Roberts wasn't, um, which lead, led me to believe instantly that it was someone who knew Rose. Um, so my question is. Uh, did Dan know that they were going to be at that hotel or in that town? He says no. Uh, he says that he didn't have any um, uh, idea about that. Um, again, there was very a very small amount of people that knew they would be there. So if you look at the people that knew they'd be in that town and then knew they'd knew, be at that hotel once she called there and says, I'm at this hotel, it's a very short list of people. Um, and they, they sort of explored that list and didn't find anyone that they could they could uh, match up to, to committing the crime. 
Okay, yeah, I, I'll just leave it at the town because you said there's only a few ho- little uh, hotels in the town, so I think you could make a few calls and find out um, pretty easily. Or if you're in the area, you could drive around to those hotels and find the car. So you don't have exactly. to know what specific hotel to have been the killer. But I would say that anybody who knew where they were going or that they were going to that town, I'd say that there's definitely that's your list right there. Exactly, and there there is evidence there was a phone call made to the hotel on someone asking for them. So it does that that scenario could have very well played out to where somebody doesn't know where which hotel they're in, but they know they're there someplace. So they call around so they get the right one. But to your point, you you mentioned earlier about why Paul Holes thought it was a serial killer. There's some very strange clues uh, in the in this crime. One of them is toothpaste that were squirted all over the crime scene. Like somebody took a, a bottle of, of uh, toothpaste and squirted it um, in the, in the tub. Uh, I think on the sink, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there, this serial killer, there were a couple different murders that happened in Midwest hotels around the same time. And one of the odd coincidences that Paul found was that toothpaste was squirted from toothpaste bottles or, uh, around the hotel rooms. Um, so, that's a very, very unique MO, and Paul zeroed in on that, and that's why he came to think that it, it was uh, a serial offender. Okay, but were those details about that serial killer public at the time? Like, could someone who knew this couple have read that and just squirted the toothpaste to make it look like it was another strike from the serial killer? Now, those 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 toothpaste details were very uh they're close to the vest. They're not something that were reported readily in the um in the newspapers and whatnot. And you're sure about that? It wasn't leaked by anybody, who knows? Yeah. I mean I, I guess technically I if it's, someone it was dug hard enough they could find it. It's yeah, that's it's hard to ignore that. So that's it, when I'm working on this case, I'm like, all right, I think it's the person they knew. Then all of a sudden I start looking at that. I was like, wait a minute, that's very unique for someone to do that. Um, and that, and I start going down that avenue. That's the problem with this case. There's so many different possibilities. On top of it, you've got um, the whole hatchet murder situation. The, the police went as far as to see if this case was inspired by um, The Shining, which was out at the movie theaters uh, when this happened. Um You've got the hotel room. You've got it's not two seventeen or two thirty seven. It's it's two sixty. But uh, they actually in, in some of the reports they mentioned The Shining, um, seeing if that's a, a a possibility. But they they also they found little hints of cult activity, um, uh, satanic interest. Um, I don't want to give too many spoilers away. Okay. Uh, this is this is really fascinating, but. I keep coming back to a couple of things. One of them is the fact that they weren't even supposed to really have this hotel room or motel room in the first place. Uh, it was a last-minute cancellation. And the fact that someone had allegedly, or is it a fact that someone had called uh, to ask if this couple was staying there? Yeah, so someone someone called, and, and when they signed in, uh, they signed in, uh, Roger signed in. He signed in as um, Roger Burkert instead of uh, using his own name, uh, Roger Atkinson. Um, maybe to cover his tracks in, in some way. Uh, back then, uh, you know, paper trails were harder to follow as compared to now, but he did he did appear to change his last name and use Rose's last name when he signed in. Um, so uh, it seems like he was trying to cover his tracks a little bit there. But what did the hotel worker tell the person who called? Yeah, no, we don't have a Rose Burger, but we have a uh, Roger Burger. Is that the one, do you think? He's like, yeah, room 260. It's something along those lines. Um, and they, uh, it was more along the lines of, do you have a Burger right there? And she's like, Burkhart, we don't have any Burkharts here. And the person corrected them and said, no, Burker. And she looked it up. And said, "Yes, we do. Let me put your call through." They, she actually went under hypnosis to recall the conversation more in depth. So they really, they really did not leave any stones unturned. They put her under hypnosis, and she remembered saying the person asking for Burkert. She thought they asked for Burkhart, and the person corrected them. It was a man, and said Burkert. And she said, "Yes, we do." 
she put the call through. She, there's no indication she said yes they're in room 260. From what we understand, privacy-wise, they wouldn't have given a room out like that to someone. But um, they put the call through, and they don't know what happened with the conversation, but the call got put through. Yeah, it doesn't always mean someone followed the rules, right? Yeah. Now, was this a hotel or a motel? Um, <laughs> we had some a little bit of uh, debate on what that actually is, a hotel versus a motel. Um, it's, it's, I think it's be classified as a hotel. Um, I mean, it had some amenities. It was, uh, it had, yeah, it had a restaurant. It had some kind of conference room and it had like 150 rooms. Um, so I think it was more of a hotel. Um, it was a pretty big place. It was, uh, sorry, the doors to the rooms were not accessible from the parking lot. Yeah. So the, the room itself was hard to get to. It was on the innermost part of the hotel although there were access doors where someone could walk out you know the kind where you don't want to lug all your stuff from the car to the all the way through the hotel when you can just go out the door and your your car's parked right there there were a couple doors like that but still the way that the hotel was laid out it was like a maze and this room was the hardest one to get to and and the most isolated um but there were doors close by that the person could have escaped as soon as they committed the crime they could have went out one of those doors Sure. Because sure. they would have they would have been covered in blood, no doubt. So to walk down through the through the uh front desk area would probably raise some suspicion. Yeah, I'm I'm more curious with how they got in there. Now I'm starting to think that they uh were in there waiting for them, perhaps, that they didn't break in. There was no forced entry. It was a cancellation, so maybe maybe they figured out a way where they could get a card and get in the room, or actually there probably wasn't a card back then. It's probably a key. It was um, a key. But the, the possibility that they might have been in there waiting um, crossed my mind. Did did the couple go out for dinner, or, or or did they leave the room at any time? And also, were they killed in their bed while they were sleeping? It was Is that the indication? So the, the, the evidence seems to be that they were awake, and we're laying in bed. Now, this is interesting. Roger was in his underwear, and Rose was fully dressed. Because she got up to open the door. Possibly. Or she. there's evidence that she moved her car from an illegal parking spot and then came back in. So she could have met someone or let them in, walk down, and said, okay, I'll come down and meet you. I'll bring you up. And then she met whoever it was. Or they followed her in and forced their way in behind her when she came back from moving her car. Um there's a lot of unknown variables, but what's clear is that the person seems to have held them both in bed and talked to them for quite a while. Um, they rifled through Roger's wallet. Uh, there were pictures torn up. Um, some other, uh, there's a little bit of money missing, not much, but, um, and then they just out of the blue, just attacked them. But what's strange is Roger seemed to have been attacked first and if, if you're Rose and somebody's hitting him with an axe, you think you would get up and start screaming and run towards the door. That never happened. She laid there as well and just uh, stayed still while, while these uh, hatchet blows came down on her. Um, nobody reported hearing anything. How do we know that, the order uh, of events? Well, there, there were uh, a good amount of people in the surrounding rooms because everything sold out, so the rooms were fully booked. Um, and the, the people that were in the rooms closest and in the hallway, they sort of built a timeline of what they saw, when they saw, if they heard anything. Um, and there's just no reports of anyone hearing or seeing anything unusual. You know, if you heard a blood curling scream going on in the room next to you, you might call the desk and say, Hey, something's going on over there. Nothing like that happened. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a real mystery what happened in that room once they were in there. Very, very, uh, very interesting. Um, could it be that, or has it crossed your mind that perhaps whatever sent Rose out of the room uh, was basically a trap? So they were waiting for Rose to leave the room. They somehow got in the room. Uh, I mean, I don't know how they would have done that without forcing the entry unless they got a key from the front desk saying that they were, um, you know, I maybe they conned a key out of somebody. I don't know, but was is there any chance that that he might have been killed and then Rose came in on the scene and maybe was was struck upon entering the room? The the police have explored all these possibilities, and unfortunately, there's just no way to rule 
most of them out. Um, there is some evidence that she did go down, move her car from a spot, and then whether she was down there and met someone willingly and they came back with her or they just followed her and as she went into the room, they pushed in behind her. Um, there's just so many unknown things. I can tell you this, that the police went as far as to find everyone that had stayed in that room the previous year, track them down to see if they might have had a key and, and check them out um, to see if someone had a key that could have gotten in there. As a matter of fact, there was a uh, a guy that was busted. He was a serial uh, hotel room burglar, and he had like lots and lots of keys for for hotel chains down there. And he was active down there. They actually checked him out uh, and ruled him out just to make sure he couldn't have been involved. That it was someone that uh, a robbery got wrong or something like that, uh, and he was ruled out as well. Well, that's pretty interesting. Let me ask you again about Dan. You mentioned Dan's DNA was tested. Um, wh- when was that? And like, was that you know in the '90s or was that any time recently? And and where is Dan now? Is he still around? And wh- what kind of legal trouble has he gotten into since then? Uh, Dan is around. Uh, he he actually reached out to us and said at our invite that he didn't want to take part in the podcast. Um, that no he kidding. had said. That he had said everything that he has to say, and uh, he didn't have any interest in doing the podcast. Um, Shocked. But again, as as far as, as police uh, that we've learned, they fully checked him out. He was the number one suspect, obviously, because she said, if anything happens to me, um, check this guy out. And he was the first one checked out. But um, he's been cooperative. He did give DNA. Again, I don't know the exact time when he did that, but it was written more recently uh, since DNA has been at the forefront of everything, I think. Um, and his alibi checked out his work between all of that. I think he lie detector test, I think he took. So I think as, as overall that stuff combined sort of ruled him out short of him paying someone to do it or something. We even talk about that a little bit. Um, could someone have, he had someone do it even going that far, you know, short of that, it would be very hard for him to be the killer. It's very baffling because it's taking everything in me to not say that it was him. It's just a matter of figuring out how he did it, whether he's convinced himself he didn't do it. You know, he convinced himself how to pass a lie detector test uh, because it's really hard to imagine that these two people just happened to be in that room, which was not supposed to be theirs. It was a cancellation and some other person not connected to them had uh, went on like a, a kill rampage in that one room and they were having an affair and he <laughs> allegedly butchered her dog. And she said, if anything happens to me, it's this guy. It's so hard to believe that it's not him. And Rose is only 22 as well. I just want to point that out. And there was a bit of an age difference there. He was 32. Uh, Roger and Rose was 22. Mm-hmm. She's a single mom. Um, she was starting a new job uh, the following week. Um, where he was married and he had, you know, there was some discussion that he wanted to divorce, but um, his wife being very religious uh, really didn't want a divorce. So, and, and what's interesting is in these kind of cases, usually it's someone close to the victims that's responsible. So when you look at everyone close to the victims, Roger's wife had an airtight alibi. But when you look at her inner circle people, she had a um, an uncle that was a serial killer who killed uh, multiple people. Um, <laughs> there's a, a, another a brother-in-law of Rogers that's got some shady stuff in his background. Um, uh, as far as this case goes, things that he said, things that he did, when he knew things, when he you know maybe knew stuff before he should have known. Uh, he tells some stories that don't add up, and the police sort of they sort of go down the road looking at him a little bit um, because he doesn't, um, things just don't make sense, but he too gives DNA and is ruled out. Um, So there's so many there's so many paths that the police go down and everyone seems to be a dead end. What's the story about her, her uncle being a serial killer? Yeah. Her, her, her uncle was a serial killer that, attacked younger men and boys uh, in the Midwest. I forget how many victims he had, but he had a few. 
uh, and even out in California, he was active. Um, and they looked at that possibility. Well, could she have been mad and invite and said, you know, asked her uncle to, to do, to go there to this hotel and kill them. Um, the thing, the thing with that is they hadn't had any contact in years. Uh, his wife didn't even know they were there. This was so secret, especially from her. She's the one that had the, the, probably the no clue at all that he was there at this hotel with Rose. Um, so I think she'd probably be the last person that would have any inkling, but it's just interesting when you look at this circle of people that each one of them has these sketchy people in their background and, it, what's, what stands out about this case is when you become the victim of a murder, your life is going to be put under a microscope. Um, the good things, the bad things, the secret things, it all gets exposed. And this is what we see with this case. Um, it's the unfortunate thing of um, big secrets that these this couple didn't want anyone knowing about. It all comes out. Um, and And that's what we're left with. Well, we're we're not stopping this interview until we solve it. So hope you're uh, hope you got your coffee. I feel like we're really close, actually, and uh, and really, I, I can't wait to listen to your show to uh, to get more more involved in this because uh, I do have so many questions still. But one thing I was curious about was this mortician's convention, and I guess if it's random to me, it seems like maybe it's someone from the mortician's convention who happened to see them and. You know, uh, they work in the industry of death, and maybe there's something there, but I still don't think that's probably likely. It's, I mean, is and how, like I said, this is something out of a crime novel. This sounds like an Agatha Christie, you know, a death at the mortician's convention type of uh, book. Um, but they, they check those people out, and um, no sign of any one of them being involved. They checked out their backgrounds and, um, they couldn't find anything. Everyone in that hotel, worker and uh, guest, was checked. Uh, and it was a lot of people, I can tell you that. We went through a lot of names. And there's no one in there that they thought rose to the level of they could be involved. Uh, what about the detail that the killer at one point had his or her feet up on the desk and wrote... On the mirror in the soap, the word "this." What is what's that about? Well, it's just another just another puzzle piece for the the police to try and sift through. And you know, they looked on the back of the mirror in the bathroom, and there's a, someone had written a message on the mirror and, in soap, and it said "this." Uh, and there was a, a more message, but it had been erased, and the only thing that was left visible was the word "this." So. Was it uh, some kind of taunt from the killer? Was it a, were they going to play some kind of game with the police and give them a clue? Were they going to say something like, this is what you get when you steal somebody's husband? I mean, it could have been anything. And then the other possibility is it could have been left there from the previous person that stayed there. They might have wrote on the door and it somehow got missed. Um, although, we, you know, the the housekeeper that found the bodies was pretty adamant that they cleaned all those areas and those mirrors every time they cleaned up and that wouldn't have been left there. So it's, it's, it's likely that it was written by the killer. Just another, just another fascinating piece. And, and you talk about putting your feet up on the thing that it looks like somebody literally sat down or Roger and Rose are laying in the bed and just kicked their feet up and went through rifled through their stuff and took pictures of, uh, out of Roger's wallet and tore them up and, Took took a little bit of cash, but if you're if you're looking at it as okay, this is a robbery. I'm going to take your cash. I'm going to be gone. Why sit there and spend time talking to them? You know, why tear up a picture? You just take the cash and the credit cards or whatever, and you get out. No, this was someone who was upset about an affair, about adultery, and considered it dirty. And I think that's probably the reason for the use of the soap. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting point because it was such a gruesome scene. Apparently, the killer did not have any concern with uh, the sight of blood. And if they were going to write a message, if it wasn't that emotional... um, crime of passion type message I would imagine that they would do that in blood right there's a lot of blood there if they're going to write a message on the wall it seems really deliberate to use a bar of soap on the mirror 
uh, that could be never found. You know, like someone could just simply wash that away and not realize it was there. Yeah. Uh, and there was also ground soap. Somebody had taken soap and stomped on it in the, um, near the bed, near the hotel bed. Um, so the sheriff shares the theory in, in one of the episodes that perhaps the person didn't know whether or not you could leave fingerprints on a bar of soap and they didn't want to take any chances and they threw the soap on the floor and stomped it so that there would be no fingerprints on it, um, which is as good a theory as, as, as I've heard. Um, but that was another odd clue, just the soap jammed down, slammed on the ground and stomped on just a, a lot of weird stuff overall. And then there's, there's just the, uh, you know, you get the whole after the fact that the, that hotel room is cleared out for a while and then they finally reopen it and people start asking if they can stay in that room. You've got that whole vibe going on the motel. The, the maid told us the first time she went back in there, it was cold. And then she had to run out of there because it was, uh, she just had this feeling of dread. So you get this whole, ominous uh i don't want to go paranormal uh but you've got sort of that vibe going on yeah you've, you've got a, you've got that kind of vibe going uh, on as well the heat was broken i want to get back real quick to the message on the on the uh, <laughs> mirror as, as much as i as much as my i want to ask you more of when you plan on going to that uh room <laughs> Um, for an on-site episode. But first, uh, you said that there was another part of that message on the mirror that was erased, or or they think that there was another part of the message. Was that before the word this or after the word this? After. Yeah, as far as I understand, as far as my memory uh, goes, I think it was this, and then there was uh, another part of the message, and they erased everything but this. Very strange. Very strange. So it could have said something like, "You, uh, this is your fault, or... Uh, this is because of you. Fill in the blank. Yeah, this is what yeah. you get when you do this, or um, this is the first victim. I will have several more. Who knows what it what it could? Well, it, I think it's geared towards somebody like he's showing or she is showing somebody something in a mirror so they can look at themselves and see the message, and it's about them. You're looking at you, and this is because of you. So um, that's how it's playing on my head a little bit. Yeah, I, I think it's it's hap- exactly Lance. I think it's happening because of the affair in some way. And I think the soap incident happened before they were killed. Um, and I'm not sure that the killer even knew that he was going to kill them uh, until he decided to. And I think that's probably why there was no screaming. I think they probably, especially if it was the man, uh, Roger, who was killed first, maybe Rose thought she still had a chance to not be murdered, even while the killer was killing Roger. And there's, I mean, there's also the possibility, maybe there's a second killer there holding them at gunpoint, saying, don't get up, don't move. And one of them starts hacking, and um, there's no option to get up and go because there's a second person there. Um, we, we just don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if it's ever um, been considered that the hacking didn't really take place immediately. Perhaps, like Tim was saying, the killer didn't know whether or not he or she was going to to murder somebody that day, but maybe maybe a move was made. Maybe maybe Roger made a move, and Roger was knocked unconscious. And the killer's telling her, telling Rose, um, "Don't scream! Don't scream! Like he's fine. Don't scream!" And maybe there's some maybe there's some some uh, physical altercations going on. He drags her into the bathroom, show, you know, like writes a message to her on the mirror and is showing it to her, and then he he snaps, and then that's when the hacking starts. You can you can go down any number of different possibilities, and the problem is any one of them could be right because there's just not there's so little known about what went on in there. Marv, just say we're right. Stop it. You're right. You guys are right as always. Now, <laughs> uh, it, what's what's great about this case is that. You know, you get a hundred different people to listen to it. They're going to come away with a hundred different theories and a hundred different ideas. And, and uh, I think it was this person. I've literally been covering this case. In, it, I've been living this case more than I want to say for the last six months. Um, and I'm so frustrated that I can't. I can't even decide whether whether it was a stranger or whether it was someone that knew them. Um, it, it seems personal to me, um, but. It, when we when we when we talk 
about the serial killer things, the things we talk about, the reason serial killers could be a possibility, um, they make sense based on what we talk about in regards to them. So that you can't discount that either. Um, and, and I can only imagine how frustrated the police are because they've, they've gone down so many rabbit holes with this case. There's no shortage. Again, it's, it's like something out of a, a mystery novel. Um, you know, a hotel, uh, a couple that's having an affair, a mortician's convention, you know, it's, it sounds like a movie. It sounds like you could just spin a movie right off of that and add any kind of weird twist you want. And that's what happens in this case. There's all kinds of weird, uh, twist from Satanism, uh, mentions to cult mentions to, um, you know, stalker ex-boyfriends, dead dogs, uh, being, uh, found, um, any number of different things. But, and you, you just to touch on your point too, you were talking a little bit about the possibility that they were, uh, Roger was possibly knocked out. He was actually putting his hands on the back of his head while he was getting hit with the ax. So he was awake while he was getting hit and he actually lost some, uh, fingers during it. Um, so he, there's no doubt that Rose would see this happening and she apparently was the second victim, so the second one to be attacked. Rose was hit, I think, or Roger was hit, I think, six or seven times. Uh, I can't remember the exact amount, but she was hit more. Rose was hit more. Um, so when you say Roger or Rose was hit more and she was covered up a little bit with a blanket, does that mean that the killer cared for her in some manner and was trying to show her some kind of respect by covering her up? Um, maybe, maybe she's intended victim but then at this as i say at the same time roger he's known to have several affairs with women any one of the people he had an affair with or their spouses could have found out about it they could be uh someone that want, were seeking revenge against roger so um it, there's no way to really pinpoint if they were both the intended if someone intended to kill both of them that's true. I think um, by rule of thumb, if the victim is covered, I think the the general thought is that the victim was known to the uh, the killer. And that's why they that was another reason they thought, all right, this appears to be someone that is is close to them. But the problem is when they go searching down everyone that's close to them and just work their way out, there's no one. Everyone's passing. Uh, polygraph test the people that aren't passing polygraph tests yeah i don't want to hear about polygraphs get out of here with polygraphs <laughs> i want i want some more dna testing of dan that's what i want i mean he was definitely he was definitely high on the list and the first person they really put a magnifying glass on and, and, and looked closely at yeah I, I i mean she was being stalked by him that's kind of shocking that uh that they haven't been able to to get evidence um on this guy but Maybe it wasn't him. Maybe I'm uh, being too harsh. It, yeah, I, I think sometimes the most logical thing makes the most sense. Um, but then there's the cases where the most logical thing is not at all what's going on here. And this case is like everywhere in between. There's there's so many people with reasons and motives. Um, and in the end, it could just be a stranger that they randomly... Uh, ran into it was dan's kid too that he had with rose no no this was her her daughter from um a previous relationship okay and what about that guy yeah he 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 wasn't in her life at all so there was he wasn't really part of their lives um but they did check him out and he had no nothing that they could find that would show he was involved I just have one more quick question. When you reached out to Dan, was it via email or how did you manage to do that? And I just wrote a letter to him. I said, Hey, we're making this podcast and we're going to be talking handwritten letter. Uh, I've not written. I, I typed it and uh, printed it out and mailed it. Cause he probably wouldn't be able to read my writing, but um, I just invited him. I said, look, we're going to be doing this case. I sent letters out to everyone that I knew was on this list that I tracked down. And I said, we're going to be doing this podcast. We'd like to have you on as a guest if you're willing. Um, some people didn't reply at all. Dan took the time to reply and say, sorry, I've talked about this um, enough. I, I don't think there's anything else I can add to it. Um, so he did respond. He just declined to come on. Did he respond with another letter? He wrote a letter back, yeah. Did he write it in soap? <laughs> no, it was it was in ink. 
if anybody wrote something to me in soap in this case, I'd be, I'd be uh, turning that over to uh, Sheriff Rotter. But are you are you turning over the envelope with the uh, the 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 sealed flap with some some saliva, some DNA from the saliva to law enforcement? <laughs> I can't discuss that. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, uh, yeah, you've got yourself another uh, heck of a mystery, uh, Mike Morford, true crime guy. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. I hope uh, you hear from Dan again. I'm sorry if we're too hard on him in this. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of things, a lot of things do uh, do make him seem like the most suspicious avenue of investigation uh, from where we're sitting. But hey, we're not in Iowa and this ain't 40 years ago. Yeah, it's it's, like I said, it's a crazy case. And I think if people listen, they're going to be aggravated and stressed the way I am about what happened and you start going down one road and then all of a sudden you're going back the other direction. It is super uh, aggravating. I mean, I started this episode off in a very good mood. I was fantastic. And um, now I'm now I'm just very, very confused about the whole thing. I, I wish we could say at the end of the series that we know who it is and we present the person wrapped in a bow at the end. At the end, we're just as confused as we were when we started. Uh, which is the unfortunate part of the case.